Welcome to episode 22 of the WASB Connection Podcast. Ravi Hatising says we make major life changes. He calls them pivots for two reasons. Either we fail or we catch an opportunity. He's experienced both types in a career that's taken him from rock star to aviator to cultural diplomat. He last spoke to our members at the 2018 State Education Convention. Now, four years later, he'll be a keynote at the 2022 convention. Ravi thinks a crucial role of education today is to prepare children for change. We'll talk about how education can give children the skills they need to make pivots of their own. Welcome to the podcast, Mr. Hatising. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I want to start with music because I've read that it played a big role in your young life and you got a guitar at 11, started a band shortly after. Could you tell me about what role music played in your life as a child? Yeah, well, certainly not just in my young life, but in my total life. It's still a really important part of, of my life. And when I was 11 years old, my parents went through uh, what was a bitter divorce. And my two older brothers were away at college. So I was home alone with them. And I got kind of lost and confused, but discovered music really through listening to ACDC and record albums like that. And I just wanted to be Angus Young of ACDC. That was my dream. So on my 11th birthday, my mom bought me an electric guitar. And growing up in the suburbs of New York City, you know, I was playing Madison Square Garden in my mind, even though I was only on the deck. My mother was very pleased that I gravitated towards something. So that really became my passion and commitment to what I wanted to do as a profession. Uh, Probably as early as 14 years old, I realized that I was in it for the long haul and I was going to make something out of it. I also wanted to touch on your experience with education as a child. I've read that you largely found it boring, including high school and college. First, is that right? And secondarily, what's the lesson, the takeaway that would kind of help school be less boring? Well, you know, as I always tell my audiences, there's so many things really to take away from that. First of all, yes, that is correct. It's true. And I think it's because I found my passion pretty early. I just didn't relate to all those facts, figures, and formulas that had no relevance. You know, they had no context. And, you know, that's that's not really the fault of school. I mean, that's just the reality in life. You know, sometimes sure. you learn things and you don't know why you need them until later in life. And, right. you know, now, later in life, I recognize all of that. But the problem then was I just didn't see how it was going to be relevant, especially because I just knew I wanted to be a rock and roll guitar player. So I think what what schools need to do and what, what educators, and when I talk about educators, this is not just teachers and administrators, but it includes parents as well, and certainly school board members who are sort of that liaison between parents and the, and the schools. It's really important that we make a focused effort to recognize students' interests and passions early on and then nurture their talent. That's something I talk about a lot, about how, how essential it is that we need to nurture the talents, recognize and nurture them. Because when we raise a child and when we educate a child to really build upon their strengths, they have a much better chance of being successful and a much better chance of being successful in what they're passionate about. And that combination 
really leads them to being able to something I talk about and what my new book is about. It enables them to pivot through life and to really be able to be successful despite any unpredictable circumstances. So a relevant education, one that not only deals with current issues and so, so kids can actually talk about things that are relevant and things that they see on the news and things that they hear their parents talking about, but also an education that relates to their talents their interests and their strengths individually. It's really important that we do that. And I think we have the ability to do that, you know, because we have more personalized learning and we have more opportunities to combine technology into helping students discover their passions and then giving them the power and, and courage and confidence to pursue them. I really think that's the secret to it. And you use that phrase, successful despite changing circumstances, which of course applies to you and a lot of kids. Do you think that's the theme of Pivot? Well, absolutely. I mean, the book is called Pivot, Empowering Students Today to Succeed in an Unpredictable Tomorrow. And let's face it, the last year or two years almost now, you know, have taught us how unpredictable things can be. And when you have to roll with the punches and you've got to figure out how to get back up and reinvent yourself over and over and over, it's absolutely important because things are unpredictable. And by the way, this is something I also tell my audiences all the time. You know, the director for the lab on aging at Harvard Medical School says that the first person to live to 150 has already been born. So let's think about how many times our students and the generation after them are going to have to pivot in a lifetime. So we really need to explore the skill set that we need to teach students in 12, 14, 16, 18, 20 years, you know, however long they're in school, and really decide what it is it that we're going to teach them that's going to give them the ability to pivot for 100 years of productivity. And, and that's something that I'll, you know, I'll talk about in greater depth at my presentation for the Wisconsin State Education Convention. That's the essential part of it, really, is, is making sure that we give the students those necessary tools, which, by the way, I, I identify really as four, four segments, which is inspiring curiosity, nurturing talent, provoking critical thinking, and fostering communication. And I think if we focus on those four pillars of education, we really do enable students to develop the necessary skills so that they can pivot throughout an unpredictable future. Before we talk about your first pivot, we should probably talk a little bit about Hanson. And <laughs> for folks who do some research on you or read any biography of you, it's yeah. probably pretty prominent for understandable reasons. If that's the first thing people learn about you, how do you think that shapes their preconception of you? And is it helpful or does it lead people to kind of misunderstand or underestimate you? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and, and I don't know because it's different for everybody. I mean, you know, Hanson was one of those funny bands that you either loved them or you hated them. <laughs> there was nobody that was in the middle of that. And, you know, we were the top-selling band in the world that year in 1997. And while it is the first thing that many people will find out about me if they Google me, the reality is that's only one year of my life. You know, so it was certainly a highlight and a launching pad but it wasn't a huge part of the body of my total work to date. Nevertheless, it is something that obviously people remember. And so it is a highlight and something that I talk about in the presentation as well, because whether you love the band or hated them, either way, it's kind of a guilty pleasure to get on the inside of 
how that all came about, you know, and my audiences enjoy that a lot because it also gave me a lot of lessons in life. As, as I often say, for me, Hanson was the Harvard Business School of Rock and Roll. I learned about everything I needed to know about having a career in the music industry during my time with Hanson. So it wasn't just the peak of my career, but it was also the peak of my education, I think. That period in 97 was, whether people knew it at the time, a real turning point in recording about digitization of music, cratering record sales. Did that play into switching careers? Kind of how, how did that go about? But the proper word is collapsing <laughs> my career. That's what happened. My career completely collapsed. There's two things that require you to pivot in life. One is an amazing opportunity, and the other is when everything collapses. <laughs> that's when everything collapsed. And you're right, because at the turn of the millennium, that's when we switched to a sharing economy, which I talk about in depth in my presentations as well. Everything changed. For the music industry, it was Napster that took us down. And so, you know, there was a great need at that time to become an entrepreneur and to be an entrepreneurial thinker in order to figure out how we were going to come out of this vortex of what was a collapsing music industry at the time. And it's not just the music industry. Lots of things changed around then, around Y2K. And, sure. you know, we became, as I said, a sharing economy. And that changed our whole tech culture and our culture of independence. And we started to really see some generational differences then. At that time, of course, then that was followed right by, you know, by 9-11. That created another huge need for people to pivot as we had a global economic meltdown. So that whole time was really a time of change and a very important part of my life. And I think that's why my audiences also relate to the stories, because they were all there, too, during those times. And they had to make their own pivots, not unlike what we are going through today at this moment, you know, and that's what's so interesting and I, I think so relevant about looking at that time because the turn of the millennium, 2008 global financial crisis, and today share a lot of similarities that we can um, look to for, for some guidance on how we're going to recover. As you think about that transition in your life, what do you think are the skills or the dispositions that education could have helped you make that better or maybe that, they, maybe that it gave you? Yeah, well, that's the key. You know, I, I think I spent a lot of my time thinking how my education didn't serve me well. Mm -hmm. But then when I started speaking in education and I look back at it, I go, wait a second, I'm where I am today because of my education. Whether I liked it or not, whether I did it in a structured, traditional format or sort of took my own path, the reality is that I did take my own path, but my education and my school system sort of enabled me to do that. It gave me the confidence and the ability to do that. Again, it comes back to those four pillars, I think, you know, of inspiring curiosity, nurturing talent, provoking critical thinking, and fostering communication. That's why I highlight those in the book, because these are the elements that really gave me that ability to make that first pivot, the second pivot, the third pivot, the fourth pivot, and probably the next pivot, you know? It's, uh, and you know, I'll break that down just a little bit more. You know, we have to allow students to fail, and our system doesn't allow them to do that. We have to encourage students in a safe environment, which school is a safe environment, that's where they should fail, so that they can learn to recover and, uh, you know, try again and, and succeed ultimately. Uh, failures are stepping stones to successes. And if we don't give them that opportunity, which is difficult these days for teachers in standardized testing environments and things like that. But if we don't give them that opportunity, then we don't really enable them to build the confidence to take a chance 
and to pivot when they need to pivot. And and the other thing that's been so important to me through my life story that I talk about with my audience and, you know, it's become so apparent is the, just the ability to have a conversation, fostering those social skills. Everything, including Hanson and my opportunity there, really came about because I was able to carry on a conversation with somebody that had the keys to make my dreams come true. <laughs> you know, so we have to give our students those skills. It's It's really, really, really important. I'll include more on those four themes in the show notes, so if folks want to read a little bit sure. more, they can check that. With the caveat that every generation grouses about the next one, it's often said that young people today have difficulties or challenges making conversations, approaching folks. Do you think there's anything to that? Yeah, I do think it is, and I think there's a number of reasons for it. I mean, asking questions for some reason is, is becoming a more and more difficult skill. And I think the reason is, is because we have other resources. We have different ways to get information than asking somebody. You know, we don't have to face the intimidation aspect of talking to another human being to get some information. And I think that's a shame because it's important that we still have those abilities, especially cross-generational abilities. So one of the things I talk to my audiences about is, you know, we need to foster opportunities for younger people to talk to older people. So that could be kids talking to their grandparents, but it can also be students talking to teachers who are not their own, just so they start to get in the habit of talking to people that they wouldn't normally talk to in you know the regular course of the day. I often say, you know, the, one of the worst things we teach children is never to talk to strangers. <laughs> can you imagine if I took that lesson? <laughs> Nothing would have happened. You know, we can't, what we have to do is we have to teach them how to talk to strangers. And that's a skill, you know? And so if we do that and we give them the confidence and, you know, we let them fail and we do all the things that you and I have been talking about, I really do think that we empower students to be able to navigate and pivot through their unpredictable futures. And speaking to that first pivot, it was, I understand to aviation of all places. And could you tell me what drew you to that area? Yeah, so 2008. So we talked about Y2K, the collapse of the music industry in 2000. So I spent the next eight years trying to rebuild another career as both a speaker and a musician, but all in the music industry. So I was talking about artist entrepreneurship and things like that. And I had sponsors and, and I was doing guitar clinics and I was traveling all around the country until the global financial crisis of 2008. And then I saw my career just completely collapse again. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to do something totally different. And I followed my other childhood dream, which was to become a pilot. And I decided to go out and get my pilot's license that year. I just thought it was the greatest classroom I'd ever been in. All of a sudden, while I was in the cockpit of an airplane, I understood why everything I learned in school made sense. I was able to apply all of those facts, figures, and formulas that made no sense. They all of a sudden had relevance because I was now having an experiential learning opportunity in the cockpit of an airplane. And it's kind of funny, just talking to you right now, I'm thinking, okay, so the Harvard Business School of Rock and Roll was Hanson, but then I had this amazing experiential learning opportunity in aviation that made all of those facts, figures, and formulas relevant. And as I often say to my audiences, and I will at the education convention in Wisconsin, you know, somebody taught me trigonometry in school, but I learned it in the cockpit of an airplane, and I didn't know it was trigonometry. 
<laughs> I think that's the key. That's the key to learning is, uh, you know, when it can be done in that type of context. So I started giving speeches all around in aviation, and uh, it was great. I started going to middle schools and high schools and talking to kids about how relevant their education is for their future if they want to be empowered to live their dreams. You know, that was a great opportunity for me and a great experience just pivoting into aviation. While never anticipating that I would actually build a career in it, I did end up becoming an aviation speaker and getting uh, a lot of great gigs and sponsors in that. So it turned out to be a really nice second career. So it sounds like those seminal education experiences for you, in other words, being in Hanson, being in a cockpit, of course, either were at school or even connected to school. Do you think that, though you can't, of course, duplicate those experiences in school, what do you think about capturing something about them in, in K-12? Well, you can. You can duplicate them to some degree. Here's the key. Number one, we can't get rid of arts programs in public schools. We just should put that thought right out of our minds because not only did my own life being an example, not only did it was it something that I latched onto that gave me a reason to go to school and be able to learn everything else that I needed to, but it's also what we need now more than anything in the world is the empathy piece and for people to be connected on an emotional level and have more cultural competence, which is a lot of what I talk about. And we get that through arts and culture. So having kids participating in arts, I believe, is essential to leading us to a more peaceful world. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is, yes, we can't put every kid in the cockpit of an airplane because the insurance companies, school insurance companies would go crazy over that idea. But there is no reason why we can't have a flight simulator on a desktop computer and a ground school syllabus in every school. That's easy to achieve. And I think it's important because not every kid's going to want to become a pilot, but every kid should learn about aviation because it's one of humanity's greatest achievements, the magic of flight. So I think it's very relevant to every child's education. And I think those are some seemingly little things that we can do, easily things to do, that create huge lifelong impacts and uh, really enable students to become lifelong learners. Taking it forward a bit, you said that you turned to aviation in 08, and of course you weren't done changing. So tell us a little bit about how you got involved with the State Department. So in 2014, I developed an inner ear infection that wiped out my vestibular system, and I lost my balance on my right side. So it wasn't such a great idea for me to be landing airplanes anymore. <laughs> so again, I was forced to say, okay, you know, I could continue in that, but, you know, certainly as an aviation speaker, but I'm limited if I'm not really flying. Right. So I need to think about what else I can do. And I just wanted to go global. And I was able to get a conference to hire me to come and speak in Moscow. And so I went to Moscow, and it was there that another speaker who happened to be someone from the U.S. Department of State, from the U.S. Embassy to Moscow, was speaking. And I just, again, went up to him, had a conversation with him. And, you know, I'll tell the story at a little, with a little bit more detail at the event in January. But six months later, he hired me to come back to Russia as a cultural diplomat for the U.S. Department of State to give lectures of all things back to artist entrepreneurship, what I had been lecturing about right after Hanson, to sort of spread some American entrepreneurial ingenuity and help young Russian musicians figure out how to make a career out of it. She basically approached this person, had a conversation, didn't pitch for a job. It was just kind of maybe informal. 
Well, I think always in the back of my mind, and this is something we need to train students, is to do two things. Either you recognize an opportunity or you create one. And I think that when you're in a situation like that where you're speaking to someone that's sort of more advanced than you are in an area that's of interest, in other words, in global geopolitics, I mean, that's something that was sort of mildly interesting to me, but here was somebody with a 30-year career in it. I wanted to see what opportunity I could make out of this. Because the question that I ask myself almost every day is, what do I have to lose? I, I had nothing to lose by talking to this guy. I mean, the worst case scenario is nothing happens. And then I'm in the same situation I was in already. But something might come of it. And sure enough, something came of it. And I just told him a little bit about what I had done in, uh, you know, post Hansen about lecturing to in colleges about artist entrepreneurship. And I simply just asked him, I said, you know, have you ever done this? Have you ever brought an entrepreneurship speaker to speak to musicians? And he said, no, I haven't, but it's a really interesting idea. So, you know, a couple of follow up calls from me over the next couple of months ultimately led him to bringing me back. And that was the beginning of what became a multi year relationship with the State Department because then I started creating other programs around the world in Indonesia and Iraq and Lebanon, uh, back to music, bringing together people from traditionally opposed cultures and religions and having them write songs together in two-week workshops. So I had you know, Buddhist, Christians, and Muslims writing songs together in Indonesia. I had Syrians and Lebanese in Lebanon. I had Iraqis and Kurds in Iraq. And this gets back to what I was talking about, about having a more peaceful world. You know, I realize that through these programs that the power of the arts to bridge some of our greatest divides as human beings uh, is, in my mind, unparalleled. So this is something we can foster in every school system, in every community, uh, local, and anywhere where we have uh, some diversity, we can start to bridge that through programs like this. And that's just one example. Sports are another example. You know, there are other examples as well. What would you like attendees to be thinking, feeling, talking about as they walk out of your presentation at the convention? Well, you know, my goal is, as crazy as it sounds, is that I want everybody to believe that world peace is possible. And I want them to become purposeful in what they do and what they teach in order to try to push us there. And it always sounds kind of strange, but but I know that by the end of my presentations, there are a lot of people in the audiences that are going, okay, maybe it is. Maybe he's right. <laughs> maybe we can actually have positive impact in our classrooms, in our schools, even on our school boards, you know, which are so crazy divisive right now. Um, you know, I'm really looking forward to coming back to Wisconsin. It's the second time I've spoken at this convention. And in the meantime, you know, I've spoken to so many school boards including just this month, I was in Nevada and Virginia, I'm going to New Mexico this week, all school boards, because this is the time where we need to figure out how do we get back to some form of civil discourse so that we as communities can have conversations rather than arguments and put the focus back on our children and make sure that we are giving them the education or the tools that they need to be successful. That is the most, in my opinion, the most important conversation to be having today to get that focus back and I think school boards play a really important um, role and a leadership role in this and I think they have a, a great opportunity here to help us get back to these conversations that ultimately help us move our children into their future and into a successful future so 
you know, I, I want I want my audiences to leave thinking about the bigger picture, the global picture, and to always remember that we're not just educating our children for our future, we're really educating them for their future. And their future looks very different you know, than ours. So we have to prepare them to lead that, uh, you know, lead all of us into the future and to be able to navigate it accordingly. And I, I think my audiences always leave with a really good understanding of that. And uh, I would just say, you know, on that note, too, that as I always say to my audiences, this is just the beginning of the conversation. And my hope is that the conversation that I have with my audiences is sparks more questions than answers that all of them who are the leaders of education can then start to find solutions for, you know, the issues that we need to solve. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you'd like to discuss? No, not really. I mean, I'd love to invite anyone who's listening to visit my website at RaviUnites.com. They can learn a little bit more about me there. And, um, and also just to let them know if they come to the convention, I am not one of these speakers that flies in and flies out. I hang out with my audiences. So, you know, like I said, the keynote is just sort of the, the beginning of the conversation. I will be there for the rest of the day and the evening and at the social events and, you know, ready to have conversations around the bar because that's when we really make change. And so I just want my audiences and everyone listening to know that it's not just about coming to hear me speak. It's about me also hearing what you have to say and us having a conversation to see how together we can, you know, really make some progress. Yeah, that's one of the things our members really enjoyed about your last presentation, how you stuck around, listened, talked afterwards. Yeah, no, I, and, and, and I appreciate them. I mean, you know, as I always say, if, I, if I'm not listening, I'm not getting any better. I'm not learning. So I also need my audiences to help educate me so that I can get better and better and help others as well. Well, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Please check out the show notes to learn more about Robbie, his book, and the State Education Convention, held January 19th to 21st in Milwaukee. Next month, we'll feature an interview with the 2022 Superintendent of the Year, Nina District Administrator Mary Pfeiffer. See you then.